Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Source of Uncertainty. Here we are. We are your hosts, Kyle. And Robert. And uh, yeah, we're in episode two. And first off, we want to thank you all so much for listening. Can you believe we made it to two episodes? I, I didn't think we could do it, but <laughs> here we are. Yeah, the outreach from everyone is just great. You never know what you're going to get when you put yourself on the inter- out on the internet. Yeah, it was very overwhelming. I, I don't know about you, Robert, but I don't really have any goals in mind as far as listenership or anything like that or engagement, but um, I'm glad I set them low because I was, yeah, overwhelmed. Yeah, I, I've gotten lots of emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages and all kinds of support. And uh, it's all been positive. Got lots of great feedback. It's it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed meeting all kinds of different people in the Buchla community and outside the Buchla community, for that matter. It's just been it's just been great. I really love it. Yeah, I definitely had quite a few uh, people mention that they're not Buchla owners, um, but they might dabble in Eurorack or with other instruments. And it's good to know because I I'm kind of the same way. But with Eurorack and other formats, I listen to everything i watch you know div kids videos and obviously listen to the podcast the modcast and kind of soak all it up so it was cool to hear that it, it works the opposite way for other people too also one really cool thing from the last episode was with the music spotlight and you know when i recorded the part with um the spotlight with jamie drew and i was i was admittedly a little nervous about it because i'm not a music critic or anything like that but people messaged me and told me that they were really excited about both that album and the one that you did, Kyle, for Nezrup, mm-hmm. because they had never heard Bukla music that sounded like that. Or they they didn't know that, you know, there was music for Bukla that wasn't just the kind of demos that, you know, we often make um, to show off the low pass gate or something like that. They were, you know, Jamie's music was very kind of sullen and with the cool sounds and then Nezrup was super jazzy. Mm-hmm. I listened to that mm-hmm. on the plane to New York City. And, you know, people were really kind of surprised by that, which I thought was fantastic also. So thank you to those artists for taking part in the show as well. Yeah. And actually we, uh, you know, we put out a a call to action that, you know, if you have music that you're making with your instrument that you've, your Boogle instrument that you've, you know, put up on Bandcamp or elsewhere, uh, reach out to us. We um, actually, our music spotlight of this month is Ross Healy from uh, Melbourne, Australia in yeah, he reached out to us and kind of introduced us to his whole catalog and, and everything. And it, uh, we're quite blown away. So yeah, in a little bit, you'll get to hear about his album, a silent burst and, uh, stuff that he's doing. Um, so yeah, let that be a listen, please reach out. And, um, yeah, we try, I mean, I think we're pretty good at, we've got our finger on the pulse a bit of, uh, releases that are coming out that are book related, but, uh, I'm sure there's a lot that has passed by us. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a released album. It could be tracks you post on SoundCloud or, or anything. It's just if you want to share it with us and have it on the show, send us a note, tell us about the music, what modules and such you use to make it, and we'll put it on the show. Yeah, and uh, also a reminder, the, uh, you can reach us at uh, sourceofuncertaintypod at gmail.com. So another thing that a few people reached out to me about, which I was kind of surprised by was um 
they were interested if we were going to start a Patreon for the show. And uh, a few of my friends that have podcasts and, and um, produce other content do this, and I'm a patron of theirs. Of theirs. I think Robert is too. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I didn't have one in mind, but um, but it kind of got Robert and I talking and, and thinking of ways um, to give more content because we do produce a lot of content that it doesn't even actually make it onto the show. Um, lots, lots of content that doesn't make it on the show. Yeah. So we kind of had enough like, oh yeah, there, we could, there could be some extra stuff that we could thank our supporters with, uh, through Patreon. So we've got a few tiers on there. Uh, so please check it out. It's patreon.com forward slash source of uncertainty. And, uh, yeah, so we're now going to be recording the, um, video recording, the featured module section of, of every episode. So um, that's on a few tiers, and we've got a lot of other stuff that we're uh, looking forward to get out there as well. In the last episode about the 266, there's a part where, if you remember, I was saying, I don't really know how to do sample and hold with the 266E. And Doug Clotter, who is a great part of the Buchla community, sent me a very nice email to explain how to do sample and hold on the 266E. He said, on the stored random voltages section, Set all three knobs fully counterclockwise to eliminate random and input offset skew. Feed your CV to the skew input and pulse to the update jack. Monitor the CV out, and that's it. So thank you very much, Doug, for that. And I, I tried that after I got the email and after I finished blushing a little bit for not knowing, feeling a bit embarrassed. Um, <laughs> hey, we can't know everything. <laughs> Come on. No, yeah. That's what this podcast it's, is about. Is, if the input know. doesn't say sample and hold on it, and then, you know, but that that's Bukla for you. Skew is the way <laughs> to go. But um, Doug is, Doug's fantastic. And speaking of Doug, I got some new modules, Kyle. I got Did the, you ever? <laughs> you well, had quite the overhaul. I got a, I, got a, I, I practically rebuilt my system. I got a 24 space case or 24U case. And I got a 252E polyphonic rhythm generator, which I really hope we talk about in a future episode. And because it has six CV outs, I needed lots of slew. So I traded my 256E quad control voltage processor for a 257E dual control voltage processor slew generator. I actually can't remember what that module's called. Well, mm -hmm. I need still needed CV processing, so I emailed Doug, and he had one more control voltage quad control voltage process, the analog version 254E that he made. Nice. So yeah, I picked that up, and I'm really excited about that. And I also got the 272E polyphonic radio. What's that thing called? The 272E. Oh yeah, the, the polyphonic tuner. I had to turn my head to look at my system <laughs> to see that. You know, the names of these things. I know them all. Uh -huh. but sometimes, and the numbers. Sometimes they, get, yeah, sometimes they get a little bit jumbled up because you've got a polyrhythm and a polyphonic and they're right next to each other. So that, that module is really crazy. I posted some some weird stuff on Instagram with that guy. And so I'm, I've kind of been shuffling modules around a lot and it's been it's been really fun. Yeah, you've got a whole new world in front of you. That's yeah. pretty wild. Um, I guess we, I, on the topic of, of numbers, um, 
we throw those numbers around quite a bit. And I think if, uh, think of those Iraq sender people that are maybe listening to, to us, uh, we're going to try and say the full names of the modules whenever we can, but, um, we tend to get into kind of a flow state and just start <laughs> throwing the numbers back and forth. And so I apologize that it's probably very distracting and you don't quite know hundred percent what we're talking about. Um, but, uh, that might lead us into doing like a, uh, a Buka 101 episode at, at some point, kind of uh, talking about the differences between um, kind of like the, the main formats, from 5U to Buka uh, to Eurorack, and, you know, explain differences between uh, gates and impulses and, and triggers and, and things like that. Yeah, and there are lots of really unique design features and Buchla modules that may not be apparent when you first look at them. And I think it'd be pretty cool to go into that. And our guest next month might be able to provide a little bit of insight into the, into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Very true. Um, yeah. So, well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I got any new modules last month, but, uh, <laughs> I've uh I am prepping for a module on the spot show uh this coming uh Saturday, which is gonna be August third, um, at Volunteer Park in Seattle. And it's in conjunction with this uh light art festival called Lucio. Um and it's gonna be pretty sweet. So there's gonna be uh three screens projected um kind of beside each uh person that's playing at the event. And it's also kind of a, a quad show that's on the rails. So it, our audio is going to be fed to um, to a third person that's going to be uh, using our our, um, our clock signal to then uh, mess with the visuals in time with what we're playing too. So uh, it's going to be pretty wild. But honestly, I only put a, together about half my set and I've st- Still have about five more days to go, so I'm kind of sweating that a little bit. But you know, I'll rise to the occasion. I'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it sound good. Um, and I, I heard a secret that ooh. you're going to have one of next month's featured modules in your set. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So don't tell anyone. Don't tell no. anyone what it is. I mean, if you come down to the show, sneak peek. There you go. You know. <laughs> fly out to Seattle from Denmark or wherever you're from. It's worth it. It really is. (laughs) We'll see. Um, So yeah, I'm sure we'll be, I'll be talking about this set quite a bit uh, for episode three. Um, And then also on that note, I did also want to give a shout out to our friends at uh, Modular Seattle and uh, Patchworks. And they're putting on the Velocity Music Festival that's taking uh, place on October 5th at the substation Seattle. There's going to be a bunch of great artists playing uh, Basic and Annie, Banna Hafar, um, uh, Art Benny, Yours Truly will be there as Dark Sparkler, and uh, a bunch of other people. And uh, there's also going to be uh, Ben Divkid Wilson is going to be there. Um, uh, he's got a panel that he's going to be doing, and he's also going to be shooting videos for his site um tim held from the podular modcast is going to do a live show and so uh yeah if you're in the area you can uh, buy tickets now at velocityseattle.com. but 
but uh, they will also be live streaming the whole event too. So if you're not, you can still check it out on October the 5th. That's going to be really, really fun. And I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. I won't be performing, but I'll, you'll be, you'll I'll, be, I'll sing bl- along. You'll be blowing me kisses from the audience. Yeah. If I, if you give set. me a pre-recording of your set, then I'll sing along with it. Oh, there you go. If, do, yeah. Do, do, do. <laughs> that wouldn't be distracting at all. No, I could probably get some of the randomness though. <laughs> could, could throw, that, throw that in there for you. <laughs> uh, that's going to be perfect. Um, so let's start talking about what's going to be on this episode. I keep yes. telling everybody that um, it's episode two and we might be peaking on episode two. <laughs> it's only downhill from here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we start can... off with Todd and today's guest is none other than the breaker of bananas, the mother of Marfs, the diva of the diode, Suzanne Chiani. I mean, Suzanne. Boom. Yeah. I mean, we could end the show right there. We might have, yeah, we might not get to a third show. Um, but yeah, it was uh, a thrill to talk to Suzanne, as you'll hear us gush for about 45 yeah. minutes to her at the end of it. Um, but before then, we are also uh, taking a good look at the multiple arbitrary function generator. Which, um, which we're diving right off the deep end, kind of going from, you know, all that random from the last episode to a crazy, highly programmable control voltage source and processor. And so much more. Yeah. And I got my, uh, so I got a clone of this one. There weren't that many made <laughs> originally, so I definitely don't have an original, but I've got a, a version two clone. Uh, I got it last November, and uh, even though I only have an easel, it's basically the, or I have an easel, I have a 281, and I wanted another uh, big source of control voltage to throw out the easel. Um, it's a, the whole MARF is a lot for the easel <laughs> to handle, um, but I just really wanted something big to kind of dive into that I knew it would take me, you know, a year or two to master while I can, you know, save up enough money to actually pay for it and other modules to grow my system. Um, but yeah, when did you become aware of the MARF, Robert? I, you know, it's really, it's funny because it was the Buchla Concerts 1975 album that Suzanne released on Finders Keepers a few years ago. Yeah. And, you know, she has her, um, the, the paper, the copy of her paper that she got for, uh, that she wrote for her grant. And that kind of starting to learn about Buchla sent me down the road of the 248 because, you know, when you search, when you Google it, when you Google Buchla, that's one of the big modules that comes up. And it just seemed like this sort of Holy Grail module, you know, that was so uniquely Buchla. And and I saw in Eurorack, for example, lots and lots and lots of questions from people what module does what the MARF does. And the answers were always, well, you gotta take this, 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 and this. And, and, you know, part of that is because the thing is just very, very large. But I, when you got yours and I, you know, Bill is a mutual friend of ours, the builder, and he asked me if I wanted one. And I, I thought, you know, I never thought I would have a MARF because they're big and I'm, I'm a 200 E kind of guy, but 
it's kind of, it was the reason I got into Buchla in the first place. And I don't have, you know, 50 grand to spend on an original one. So, or however much it costs, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 50,000 bucks, but yeah. But, and I was happy with the clone. Um, so the, it, when I started to, you know, when you got yours and I saw you at uh, modular nights playing, using it with your easel and I, I, I re- by the way, I reject the notion that it's too much for the easel because the easel is an extremely powerful and expressive instrument. It doesn't have as many CV inputs as a 24U mm-hmm. 200E, but it is, you know, <laughs> ex- extreme, especially with your 281 and 292. So I saw the, what you were getting out of it with relatively s- smaller number of inputs and only two oscillators. And so I thought, you know, with 10 oscillators in my, in my setup, <laughs> plus the 272. Um, but anyway, they, I, I just realized with it being so hands-on and so tactile and moving the sliders, flicking the switches and kind of, it, it rewards time investment. I think that's what it came down to. And yeah, I, uh, it's, I just, it's daunting I really visually that. when you look at it. Yeah, it is a little bit. And I, you know, I, I knew I was you know, diving in off the deep end, getting it. Um, but yeah, you, you can, you kind of pick up on how to use it pretty quickly. Yeah. And I, I think that it, unlike, I, it kind of requires that, you know, this is my opinion that it requires that, you know, about how bucla patching works, you know, literally how it works, pulses and stuff, but Mm -hmm kind of the the workflow or the philosophy of it because it it kind of depends on you to either have a goal or know what you're doing or be open to experimentation and not getting the results that you would expect because it's you it's user interface isn't really designed around a a first a first exploration you know it's really it's a it's designed like a tool and when you invest in knowing how to use that tool, you can get a ton out of it. So it's kind of, it, it doesn't really reward exploration at the outset if you don't really know um, how, how to patch a bucle. So I wouldn't go out and buy a MARF, a 261, you know, I would I'd say that's a little bit too much to start out with. But after you kind of go through a little bit of patching the bucle, it, it does become more second nature and, and rewards that investment. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? Do you, do you disagree, Kyle? Or do you, no, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, like, I think just on the surface, like, oh, it just looks like a uh, a big sequencer, uh, which it does that very well. But I, I kind of think of it like you've, you've seen those videos on YouTube of like, you know, somebody with like a Swiss Army knife that uses it in, you know, 400 different ways. <laughs> it just kind of goes through um, all the crazy stuff that they thought up to, to use it for. Um that that's kind of like what the Marf can do with control voltage. It's yeah, just so deep in it. Yeah. So malleable and kind of can do basically whatever you want it to. But, it, and I get kind of pedantic about it a little bit as you very well know, because <laughs> we call it a sequencer because it, it can be a sequencer and in the literal sense, it emits a sequence of, of control voltages, you know, that's exactly what a sequencer is. And like I said, I'm, I can be very pedantic, but the, the thing it is that if it were truly a sequencer, Don would have called it a sequencer like he did with the sequential voltage source. Yeah. It, it can sequence and it can do that very, very well 
with timing and quantization and such, it is a very powerful and expressive sequencer. And I only mention this because I really don't want, I would really like people to not think of it as a sequencer first and everything else second, but rather a function generator first and sequencing being one of the functions. Yeah. I mean, his whole idea was, you know, if you, he had kind of a couple different versions of, of the MARF and, um, you know, one with like 32 steps and six different sections, um, that with control voltage outputs and his idea was like, yeah, with a big enough setup in this, all your control voltage needs will be satisfied with that. And like, when I think about it, like, yeah, if I had two in a pretty big setup, you can kind of, yeah, do, do so much of what other modules can do too in the system. Yeah. Sh shaping envelopes with it has been, I mean, the first thing I did was patch it to pitch. You know? Yeah exactly what i just told everybody to, to not well that's do. how you start out yeah well, that's yeah. How, yeah cuz you can hear the you know you can see the sliders and hear and hear what that's going to sound like with pitch but i once i started patching into the 292e as a dynamics manager as sort of an, an envelope then it, it seeing the layout of the sliders and watching the leds go through them just because of the way my brain works i'm seeing that wave you know that um, that envelope shape and that was pretty powerful for me and then being able to move the sliders to alter that shape then use a quad control voltage processor to further shape that you know and add some vc i mean it it quickly became a very very expressive control voltage way beyond what I thought it would be when I first started moving the sliders around. So that's kind of the magic of it that I really love. All right. Well, we should uh, quit yakking about this and get on with the rest of the show. So, uh, yeah, let's check out Ross Healy's A Silent Burst. you're listening to right now is the second track off of Ross Healy's album A Silent Burst. And as you can tell by now, we are listening to someone who has a strong vision of their work and a great command over their instrument. Recorded throughout 2015 and released in the spring of 2016, Ross used multiple systems on the album, ranging from a mixed clone and 200E system, a Buchla music easel, a surge modular system, as well as a Eurorack system. Ross's deliberate use of chaos within his sound design is arresting, but he tends to sprinkle in a dash of melody and rhythm into the mix that gives the listener the false sense that they at least have one foot still on the ground. The layers of sound on this album are incredibly deep and make it a rewarding experience upon multiple listens. 
I find myself playing the game of, I don't remember that last time, whenever I listen to it. For the last 20 years, Mr. Healy has been focused on making abstract electronic music, sometimes under his own name and sometimes under the moniker Cray. In Ross's words, he says his goal in making music is to be as original as it can possibly be, and that is one beautiful aspect of synthesis that is overlooked. In the world of dumbing down sounds into drum kits, bass lines, etc., synthesis to me is sonic landscape painting. We have the possibility to create sonic universes if we please. Yes, I grew up releasing industrial, techno, and German bass music, but my true passion is sonic design, and the boucle doesn't really sound like anything else, specifically the 200E. track for me on the album is Fastbinder. The song lures you in and gives you a humbly sweet melody to hold on to, while sounds of noisy breaks squeal in the distance and fuzzy clicks and pops tingle the ears. Not only has Ross been making music of his own, for the past decade he's been curating and releasing experimental music on his label Vic Mod Records. Here you can find Todd Barton's album Analogy that was released in 2011 with his 200E system as well as 1970s Moog explorations from the late Buchla user Richard Lanehart. There's even 15 mobile ringtones that you can download, and they're really good. So how cool is that? We highly suggest that you check out and purchase Ross Healy's album, A Silent Burst, on Bandcamp.com. And also check out VicMod.net, that's V-I-C-M-O-D, for more of Ross's music and the rest of the VicMod catalog. Comprising of 47 LEDs, 35 spring-loaded switches, 32 sliders, 26 input and output jacks, and 6 knobs spread out over a 4-unit panel, Model 248, the Multiple Arbitrary Function Generator, and often referred to as the MARF, was Don Buchla's creative take on the evolution of control voltage. Wanting to break away from rigid sequencers and the musical norms of attack decay and ADSR envelopes, Don built a highly programmable control voltage source and processor that could be molded and defined by the user's imagination. 
quoting the user's manual, unencumbered by engineering expediency or presumed musical aesthetics, the Model 248 provides a musician with an unprecedented degree of control over the dynamic aspects of his music. While most of this rings true, the irony in the unfortunate use of the pronoun at the end of the statement is that the module was made famous by none other than iconic composer and goddamn national treasure, Suzanne Chiani. Her ingenious techniques with the MARF are a testament to its malleable complexity and the surprising byproduct of it being highly performable. But with great complexity came great unreliability. Plagued by the use of early CMOS chips that were susceptible to damage from electrostatic discharge, the production of the model was short-lived, having only produced 6 to 13 modules depending on who you ask. But the idea of the MARF lived on through digital implementations and other designs of DAWNs, and it eventually found its way into the 200E system, first with the fleeting model 249, then settling down as the condensed and oval dual arbitrary function generator model 250E. With the rise of the 200 series clones in the early 2010s, there was a new hope for the original layout of the MARF with Roman Filipov's analog up front and digital in the back recreation. But much like the original, it doesn't work at 100% as it's fraught with bugs, CV jitters, and oversights, leaving the owners hoping for a firmware update before the end of the decade. But even when this module is only working at half its capacity, its design is still way ahead of its time. Let's dig in. Let's do some multiple function generations in an arbitrary way. Sounds good to me. Um, so if you take a look at this monstrosity, it's a four unit panel, uh, basically as wide as an easel is, and it's kind of broken up into, uh, three sections, I'd say, uh, the first two sections, um, are what we call them section A and B are kind of the, I don't know, we'd say the brains of the, yeah, yeah, the, the transport controls and the outputs right yeah <laughs> there's so much going on and then the middle and so basically it, you you jump from back and forth between section a and section b and you have uh on the far right side a set of uh, two sets of 16 sliders one is for the output voltage level up top and one is the interval time below and the output level voltage goes up to two volts, although there's a jumper to change that to 1.2, but the default is two volts. And the interval time goes up to 30, which would be 30 seconds if you have that set as the cycle in the operating mode. Yeah. And then in the, the time range. Yeah. So then the last section is the middle, which is where all the programming happens, where you can start to program um, a whole bunch of different parameters for each step. Um, going from uh, putting in pulses per step, you can do up to two. Um, and then you have your output voltage section, which runs through if you want the voltages to be quantized, if you want them sloped instead of stepped, uh, their full range off the slider. Um, or you can, uh, there's also kind of a, an octave switching system in here. And then also or defining the steps from uh, how long, how many sets of steps you want to use for each section, and uh, and then the time range, which goes from a very fast 0 0.002 um, up two, to... Two hundredths of a second. Yeah, two hundredths of a second up to 30 seconds. Um, 
And, and those set the base time range in seconds, which then are manipulated by the sliders and on the interval time. Yeah. Set, you know, the bottom section. There's like three dimensions of time on this yeah. thing, which is pretty neat because you can have your range, which sets how much uh, control the inter each interval time slider will give it. And then you have a time multiplier back on section A and section B, which can, um, yeah, which you have your range in there. So you can get some really uh, lengthy times. I mean, you can basically get two-minute stages if you want to. The time multiplier knob goes in a range from 0.5 in yeah. counterclockwise to 4 in clockwise. So it's a decent, decent range. That 4 is going to be extraordinarily fast if you have it set to 200. No, it's, it's the other way. So oh, it's going the, yeah, down. backwards, yeah, because it's a multiplier. Yeah. So you're multiplying by 0.5. So it's going to be half. So <laughs> so you can still get, yeah, so you can even get, yeah, down to, I guess that's... It's an imperceptibly, <laughs> imperceptibly. So the thing I love about the MARF, um, Kyle got me really interested in this, and you know, I'd always seen it, but this programming interface, you know, we consider that this came out in like, what, 1977 or 75? No, it's like 73. Or even earlier than yeah, that. Yeah, because Suzanne had it by her... 75 recordings and that's right so yeah i think it's 73 is when it came out and not and, too many of them were made and it seems inconsequential that that's only four years but a lot happened in computers in those four years so in the old days of computers you know there were punch cards and stuff but around the late 60s early 70s the digital computers that had a programming interface on the computer itself worked like the marf where you moved through different they weren't really stages they were registers but you move through the registers and then flipped switches to set a binary value of one or zero. Mm -hmm. And as the computer moved, you know, went through the registers of memory to perform operations, it would result in a calculation as an output. So, and that, that might be a discussion for another podcast, but the MITS Altair, which came out in around 1974 and was the basis for the founding of Microsoft and the MSI 88, I think the MSI 8080, which you can see in the movie war games, they both had these switch style programmings as you shifted through the registers of memory and, you know, turn things on and off. And then for your computer nerds out there, we know that was replaced with assembly language um, a little bit later in the microcomputers. So I love this interface because it's very tactile, you know, and hands on. And as you move through the stages and the little light lights up underneath the output voltage level and above the interval time, and then you flip a range switch, you know, and you can see. The light changes. I just think that's amazing. Yeah, so and I, I guess what we haven't kind of mentioned is um, almost every switch is is spring loaded, so it's just a I don't know. It's a very foreign way, I guess, with within the Eurac world and everything else that I've ever interacted with. Yeah. Um, let me let folks hear this. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can hear just like a lot of click clacking. <laughs> I'm such a nerd for, for that, that stuff. It, I don't know. It's great. It's, I don't know. It sounds weird to try and talk about <laughs> the experience of... <laughs> it is, yeah. But it's, I don't know. It's 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 like a very hands-on way of of uh, menu diving, if you yeah, will. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Rather than a screen, go like on an ornament of crime or you know, my 2TT. My two and you're scrolling, you're scrolling and scrolling and, 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 and scrolling. clicking the encoder to make stuff happen. You're, you're doing the same thing here when setting the switches, but it's a tactile, I don't want to say analog, but it kind of is this tactile experience of 
on or off for each switch because they are spring-loaded, you know, one-position switches. So push up for on and then push up for off. And they're either, you know, it's a bit uh, for most of them. So the, as you move through the stages, even really fast while it's running, you can see all the different settings mm -hmm. for that stage instantly. And of course, being four panels wide, there's plenty of room for all these LEDs to show you those things too, which is um, makes this just such an amazing. And this is why this has been such a is such a performance controller mm -hmm. and sequencer. You know, totally different from the 250e, 251, 252, and you know the other sequencers and such because it's much more than just a sequencer. And I think the LEDs and seeing what's going on at each stage, even as it's moving through the stage or moving through them is really important if you're going to do changes to the sliders in the performance. Yeah. Because you you know, you can anticipate like I'm moving the slider number uh, number four just with my finger here. And I'm a mat you know, you can imagine as it's moving through the stage and I'm moving that slider, I can see as it's you know, sixteen, here comes step four, and that's where the slider is and I can flip a switch even when it's on the stage live. There's just so much you can do with this. Yeah. So I guess let's kinda break it down through some of also what's cool is the the output section of each of the sections uh there's just a ton of there's six different outputs on each section and then there's two of them so um so first off there's just the straight up voltage uh output which is reading what's on the top row of sliders let's hear, let's hear that so stage one it's, uh... and if you quantize that Um, and then there is the time slider, uh, or sorry, time voltage out to which we can, it's just going to be the same thing if we turn it back up, but there's not a ton of, um, uh, there's an, basically the, the output voltage section, uh, you have all these modifiers you can put on it. Like we just showed you that quantized section, um, where the time it's just reading, reading out what how much voltage is coming out of there um what's also cool is this uh what they call a reference out and what that is is basically a, it's like a pulse it's kind of like the pulser on the music easel so yeah. it's just a is it just a decay envelope because it's, it's full it's kind of like i think it's based on the full length of the time interval whereas a pulse is going to just fire the pulse when the stage starts yeah but pulse is like on off where yeah. where if you scope like the pulse around the easel it's kind of like a sustain right yeah like it just it you know it's just a ramp down wave is what that is and, yeah. it, and each step uh will be the full or the full length of that step or that's what that will be so if we get that going let's see here So moved up slider three. Go ahead. Yeah, so let's if we move them all up. And that's the range is set to th point three. Uh, point three. Yeah, point three or two tenths of a second. Yeah. So what it's useful for is, I guess, if you want kind of a rhythmic hit with every, that's going to match the length of each step. Um, that's that's what you got there. Yeah. Instead of trying to um, set up an envelope that's going to somehow uh, follow that same. Yeah, and just 
because we didn't point that out, the ref output was going to the uh, level input on the 292E. So it was basically acting like an interval, or I'm sorry, like an envelope. Uh, we were bypassing the 281. Um, and that is really interesting too, Kyle, because if you have pitches set here and you're shaping the envelope here and you're going in the 282, uh, the 292, you can also use the pulse to do something else on the 281. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's just let's show a set of pitches on here. So we've got like we'll make this is a four-step sequence, and then let's just make uh, step two. We'll program an output pulse. Yeah. So that's doing a envelope to the uh, wave shape of the two fifty-eight. And if I slow this down, let's move these up. So just by kind of moving the intervals time sliders, you can just get so much from it. Yeah. And I think looking at it as like using this as a sequencer, I think that's kind of unique. Um, I don't. I guess I'm not super well versed with with sequencers in general, but having so many options per step uh, to change the timing of it. Yeah. The um, so the 251e, for example, you can set an interval time per step, um, and it's one, two, three, four, eight, and sixteen, I think. And there might be a way to get in there tight, but and you know, as you navigate through each step with the encoders, and then the two fifty e, you can set the interval length for a step, but it's not it's not like this. Mm-hmm. It's different from this. Um, maybe it's because of the menu diving that's necessary in those two sequencers, and thus my knowledge of them is going to be innately limited because here you just look at the switches and you know instantly that that you can do that but the i'm i have my morph and within you know a week of having it i was able to do this type of thing where i still can't quite figure out how to get a one-fifth interval on my 251e Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which it might be able to do that and i'm sure a listener is going to send me an email and say here's how you do that which would be fantastic where should they email us Oh yeah, source um, source of uncertainty pod at gmail dot com. Yeah, or info at source of uncertainty dot audio. So you pick whichever really long email address, <laughs> and feel free to get at us. So we kind of showed a bit of how to use it for uh, pitch sequencing, but there's so much you can do with it. I use it as um, like a preset voltage manager where like if i'm have if i'm using maybe kind of two different songs in a set and i want to have just a bass tuning different i'll have these ready to go to plug into the to the easel to change one of the oscillators and um you can use it as any type of envelope you can think of a 16 step envelope um 
and we're kind of going to get into a few patches right now that shows off a few things that this thing can do. Um, but I don't know. I think I've had this since November of 2018 and I, still feel like I'm just scratching the surface. Oh with yeah. It. We'll, we'll never master this. Yeah. We just won't live long enough. And that's, what's so fun about this one. Yeah. I, I love this, uh, because I do a lot of, I guess I do a lot of kind of complex modulations of things. And I like to have, um, a very ha tactile hands-on change to wave shapes and, and stuff like that. And then using the 251E and sending a pulse out from an individual stage on the MARF, to kick off a sequence on the 251E, which will then end. And that that's really, and so you kind of kind of use this like a pulse sequencer in a way yeah. too. Yeah, uh, yeah, you use the rhythm generator yeah. and yeah, that's very cool. So an arbitrary function. I guess I, we really know what that means now. Yeah, it, I, we, I guess I understand why you didn't call it some sort of, you know, sequential voltage source because yeah, you can make it be <laughs> whatever you can dream up. Yeah, pretty much. All right, Robert. All right. It's time. We're going to build a multiple arbitrary function. Don't you mean patch. generate a multiple arbitrary function patch? Yeah, what well, you said. <laughs> that works. All right. So we're going to use section A to do some, we're going to sequence some notes with it. So we're going to make this uh, eight step patch. So we'll start by uh, selecting uh, stage one, and we're going to press the uh, first stage for that to, to notate that we've got that being our first stage. And then we're going to click over to, uh, to number eight, and then we'll put our last stage on there. And when you do that, for the first stage, there's a red light on stage one that says first. And then on stage eight, the red light for last is lit up. Yeah. So, all, you know, Don's always thinking about where to, uh, to give us good visual feedback of what's going on. So when you do get the MARF going, it's very cool to just watch it kind of all the lights jump around showing you what's happening within the patch. Um, all right. So I've got those set up from one to eight and I will plug that into an oscillator and I'm going to have the output voltage plugged in here. So if I start that and I bring that up over here, and so that's running super fast um, because we haven't changed our time range at all. Uh, so it's running at the uh, 0.3 time range for all eight steps. So I'm going to go and turn all those to our three second stages. And the interval time sliders are all set to the very bottom. Yeah. So that would be the minimum time per stage based on that interval that you set with the switch, right? Yeah, exactly. So I've bumped that up. So it's going to go slower now. So now when we bring that up. And it's a little wiry and erratic, so I'm going to turn on the uh, quantize section for every step. So then that sets everything within the uh, uh, quantize range of the 12 volts. 
So we've got our sequence of notes going on this side. Um, I'm also going to use the reference out to uh, adjust the low pass gate. So instead of just turning it up and having that string of notes like that, I'll put it up, plug into the reference. That sounds really good. So I'll unplug that for now because we're going to focus now on section B of the MARF. So I'm going to hit the display switch and... So with the other remaining steps, I'm going to make two different envelopes. I'm going to have one that will be triggered by the uh, 223, and it's just going to be a super simple attack decay. And then uh, then we're going to have a few steps that's going to have... Um, we're going to throw some sloping in there, leave some steps uh, stepped, and uh, and see what that sounds like too. And we're not using the 281E for this right now. The voltage outputs are going straight into the um, levels input on the 292E. Plug. So I'm plugging in pulses from the uh, 223 to adjust the start and strobe sections of section B. And right now we just have a uh, kind of a drone going on right here. But when I press the section of the two, two, three, we can now trigger this envelope whenever we want to. But what's cool is we have um, uh, section M of the two, two, three. When we hit that, it's going to play a looping envelope. You kind of hear a couple clicks in there, and that's because some are stepped and some are sloped. Yeah, like almost like an attack per stage. And, you know, that stepping makes it sound like there's an attack on those first two stages. Yeah. So if I go, so if I bring in our other sequence. Sounds cool. But uh, let's make this a little bit more arbitrary. So I'm going to, here, let me go back here, turn that off. Um, I'm going to set up a pulse. I'm going to jump back to, uh, to section A, and I'm going to use the program pulses. I'm going to enter one in, I think, on our third step of the sequence. And I'm going to have that pulse a 281 envelope to the wave shape of our of our drony oscillator over there. So now when we hit it actually when we Two different um, 
they're they're obviously like not working in time with each other so they can kind yeah. of get out of phase and and uh that sweep of the uh wave shape comes in and out and there was a really cool effect that um I mean, I, we could really put the time into figuring out exactly how to make it work out, but the wave shape of oscillator A on the 258, there's a point where the shape of the wave is in the same pitch class as oscillator B, so they're in they're in tune. But because of the timing of the envelope and the time and the interval times on the 248, it's not exactly predictable when that will happen, but it is in the same pattern over and over again. So it was really cool to listen for that. Yeah. So that's one way of setting up the uh, multiple arbitrary function generator. So now we're going to get into what we're calling the Chiani method. So excited. Um, and what a big part of the MARF that we haven't talked about yet is the external inputs that can be used. So uh, I don't know how to kind of describe this, but it, it can kind of be like a CV. The MARF can be used as like a CV uh, matrix mixer. Um, you'll see these uh, on if you're looking at the MARF. It also along all the 16 steps. It uh, also delineates A, B, C, and D as you go up the slider uh, sweep, and that goes for both the interval time and the uh, output voltage. And so each step you can set it to basically not in turn not read the internal voltage that you're getting with these sliders, but stuff that's coming in through these four in, uh, external inputs labeled A, B, C, and D. So whatever position that you have the slider set at, it will then have the external voltage run through the MARF and out through the output voltage. And, and why do you think someone would want to do that? <sighs> Make this... To have somebody, I mean, like, yeah, what was like Don? You, what was Don thinking? Yeah, why do you think Don added, just you know, randomly? Like, why does are there four external inputs that map to A, B, C, and D? And I, I can't think of another thing that does that. I mean, another sequencer or anything like that. No, I, yeah, I know. Yeah, That's yeah. Like, I wish we had him here. To, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I was I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> I mean, I know what we're about to do, but you know, just kind of thought as much as we've spent time on this and using it. We're like, oh yeah, put an external input. We never really talked about why someone would want that. Well, uh, I think we probably will be talking to somebody that, uh, that figured out uh, probably the best use of this. Yeah, uh, you, might, you might be right there. Uh, so yeah, Suzanne, um, from her famous kind of, uh, what's it called? The, the, um, her paper that she wrote oh, for, yeah, for the, uh, the, the grant proposal. Yeah. It was like national endowment for the arts or something like that. Um, when she wrote her, uh, uh, her pay, her paper back in 1975, 475, um, this was included with her release for the 1975 album, um, that she put out a few years ago through finders keepers. So we've, uh, taken a look at that and tried to kind of recreate how Suzanne, uh, was using her, uh, Marf, back then and kind of way that she still does now. So what we have going is um, from the 251E, which is a, a, a quad uh, sequential voltage source, which is basically four sequencers um, that we have running into each of the A, B, C, and D inputs. And so what that, and so we've also punched uh, the notes on the sequences to match hers that she used because that's in her her paper as well. Yeah, each 
each state or each um, section of the 251E corresponds to each of the four stages that she has in the the sheet music for this. So for stage one, we've gone through all 15, 16 steps and programmed the control voltages to match the notes and, and, and uh, set the interval lengths. And then we have the tempo set to 300. All right, so let's start the sequence. Sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah, if you've uh, heard yeah any of Suzanne's Buchla music in, in the 1975 or the yeah, live she, quadraphonic. She, yeah, she does it. She still performs this. I, I'm I'm transported to New York City in 75. <laughs> so uh, so we just have section A um, of the MARF on stuck on uh, step one, and so as we move step one of the slider up into B. We're going to yeah. move to the next set yeah. of sequences. So this is the uh, section B of the 251E sending a sequence to the external input B on the MARF. And then we'll move it up to C. Now sequence uh, stage, uh, sequencer C of the 251 and then D. It's really cool. So if we want to stop this for a second... Then what we're going to do, so what she has, and she does this in all different types of ways, but what we've kind of set up is for that so we can move, kind of scale through the different um, the different note sequences with the first slider on section A of the MARF. But when we move over to section B, we have um, pulses coming out from the 251 sequencer into the uh 266 source of uncertainty. So we're getting some quantized random voltages. And... What we're going to do over here, what Suzanne would um, use as the, because it's being kind of clocked separately by the, um, by the pulse, the pulses of the uh, 251E, it's going to, um, and the random, it's going to jump around in time. And what she will do is move the time sliders up to provide voltage out of the MARF into her wave shape yeah. um, of the oscillators that she's using. So... If we start... And, and we have this going into the 258E, so the wave shape will move from a sine to a square. So if we start it back up, and we move... Uh, so randomly, as I move up a few s stages of the time interval, It'll accent those notes, and then we can move it to a different sequence. What we can also do is uh, we can have the uh, second side of the oscillator. So um, if we bring that up, and we can move the, uh, the output voltage levels for this, in random ways and when those notes hit the different um, ABC or D section of the MARF it'll change notes on there too so it's just like a jumble I mean it's pretty amazing what she did by just taking the jumble of these notes that all work together yeah it's 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 mesmer I'm, I'm sitting here watching it and I'm completely mesmerized by the like I don't even know what you're saying anymore I'm just watching the LEDs bounce around and it I think this really goes to show um, about how focused she is on it being a performance instrument and how um, imperative it was that she 
has her Marf in order to, um, yeah, to, to play on the fly, to, to um, improvise as she's going. like send the uh, put the interval time output into a like a 291 and add filtering on only on certain steps which would it ends up making it sound like you have a lot more oscillators than just the two yeah that'd be pretty fun to put in the 291 which yeah which she has two uh, filtering sources on the, on her um, setup as well but um let's down a bit so i mean yeah this is kind of just scratching the surface of how she uses it and um i yeah highly suggest to go watch any youtube videos of her performances and kind of see how she's um playing with this thing yeah and, and just to kind of recap we're using the 251e 258e um dual oscillator and the 266e source of uncertainty and then the 281 292 and so not a lot of modules on the 200e side you know, the Marf is really the one providing most of the magic. And um, it's it's a, as you'll, if you see in the video, it's it's not a particularly complicated patch. There's a lot of patch cables because of the, the four channels of the 251E. But there's not really, it's not a lot of going on here in terms of patch. Yeah, and if you look at hers, I mean, she, she then will have um, sometimes the Marf clocking the other sequences and back and forth. So she has a lot of different ways to kind of um, open it up to... Um, uh, tempo changes and things like that. And we didn't even get into the um, switching octaves or, or, or adding slopes and stuff to that, the way that it can be processed through the MARF as well. This stuff is really awesome. Let's talk to Suzanne about it. Sounds good. Okay, so thank you, Suzanne, for joining us today on the show. We're really excited to have you. Me too. Thanks, Robert, and thanks, Kyle. Yeah, so we, Robert and I were talking... Uh, we're, I mean, we're so excited to have you on and us being Buchla nerds, you know, Big we time. watch. I'm so glad to hear that. Big time. <laughs> right? The biggest Buchla nerds you're going to find. Yeah. And so whenever we watch your interviews, like all the great ones that you have, you had that recent one um, at the uh, library in Los Angeles or your Red Bull Academy um, videos. Um, they're amazing, but there's always some point where Robert and I are screaming at the uh, person asking you questions like, ask her about the Marf, talk about the filter, like, let's get specific on this. So, uh, so we're hoping to do that today and really kind of get nerdy about the instrument. Okay. Yeah. And both Kyle and I have a Marf 248, um, the clone. Oh, you have a clone that Roman Philippoff made. Yep, we have. Um, I think we both have the what the Rev Two, the latest version. Both of them were built this year by a friend of ours here in Seattle. Who well, we have a plug, Bill Lines. Thanks very much for building our, our Marfs. And so oh, Kyle yeah. and I have been talking about the Marf a lot. Um, I'm I'm new to it, but I'm I'm not new to the, a lot of the concepts in the Marf. I know a lot about sequencing, and I did. Funny enough, I did a lot of stuff with analog computers. And that's how the MARF kind of functions. So we were really, really excited about having you on the show to talk about 
the MARF and in a way that, um, you know, we, we know a bit about it, not as much as you would, of course, but we're both still learning a lot. And even before the show, we were talking about how to use it to sustain notes on the 281. And, and so we'd really like to have um, kind of a, an in-depth conversation with you about the MARF as a performance instrument and your programming techniques and really anything else you'd like to talk about at a more, you know, at a more specific level about the MARF and your Buchla system in general, because we also have questions about how you use filters and FM and, um, and lots of other things. And we'll also talk about, of course, your new Finders Keepers release. Okay, wonderful. Uh, well, there's no secret that I think the MARF is absolutely indispensable for live analog performance. And uh, when my original MARF couldn't be fixed, uh, I did manage to find a clone. I have three clones and not two of them are alike, you know, because, uh, well, that's another story. It depends on how nerdy you want to get. As nerdy as you were up for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the beautiful thing that Roman Filipov did was he cloned the Marv, but he also extended it a little bit. You know, he, he gave it a memory and, uh, there were other aspects, but the thing, you see, people thought the MARF was really about, uh, you know, making envelopes or cycling in an audio uh, frequency or whatever. But I mostly use it to kind of give me a three-dimensional sequencer. Mm -hmm. So there are four external inputs, and I put four sequences in there. And then I can access those sequences in any numbers of ways, uh, you know, one with the sliders, you know, just A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. I can, uh, I, what I do is I lock the pulse together. So my sequencer and my MARF are connected rhythmically. And how are you doing that specifically? Are you putting stop um, edits on every um, step of the MARF, or are you kind of going to both, uh, pulsing both the stop and start? Okay, well, the there, there are a variety of different <laughs> ways. And, you know, in my performances, I go from, uh, there are three different modes. And uh, one of them is where the sequencer is driving the MARF. Mm-hmm. And yes, the way that that's a little tricky. Well, I can explain that more. And then I switch to the MARF driving the sequencer. And I do that by, you know, connecting the stop, start pulses, and taking the all pulse out of, of one of the MARFs. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that drives. The thing about the MARF, I, I wrote a paper in 1974, 5, 6, as part You've of a grant. read it many times. Oh, you have. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? I'm using those techniques. Yeah. So the MARF has two independent, you know, uh, computers. But if you're driving, say, MARF number two from MARF number one rhythmically, then the timing pulses the, or the timing sliders, that timing output, the CV output on MARF two, yeah, is not working as time. So you have those levers to provide voltages. So I use the timing output, the timing CV output 
of side two, and I make a wave shape modulation with that. And the beauty of it is that I can do this randomly. You talk mm-hmm. about the source of uncertainty, so I know you're, you're in my in my cup here uh, because <laughs> I'm a huge fan of randomness because it gives uh, you know spice and variety. And, uh, you know, it's a dimension of electronic composition that is absolutely fundamental. So I do use um, a random voltage, pulsed random voltage uh, in the two, let's see, 267, right? Because I have a couple of different random modules, but I'm, my system now is very compact because yeah. I'm tour. Yeah. So I had to like really, you know, I, I use the 267 because I also get two filters, you know, in that same module. Yeah. As opposed to the more complex source of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's a, a set patch for me. I do the strobing, the strobe input is pulsed from the sequencer, so it's in in time. Mm. And then the CV is, you know, scanning left and right wherever the voltage goes and picking off the the timing positions. Of and, and are you using the fluctuating random voltage out of that or the No. I the, don't. The sample I don't, and hold. Yeah. Just the sample and hold because I want it uh rhythmically yeah because you you can pulse that at time yeah that makes sense yeah and as i say you know my system and the way i use it is is extremely uh curated in a sense to function in live performance right right so i'm not saying that this is the only way to use it but my interest is in performing and so the techniques that i'm using have to do with optimizing instrument or interactive live playing yeah. Yeah. The um I had a question about the 251E. I've I've heard in interviews, you know, your uh, um, the one that you just did with our friends at Podular Modcast uh, a couple weeks ago. You know, some frustrations with the 251E as a digital sequencer because of course you're setting a discrete voltage per step, but as an outside influencer on the MARF, you know, to the external inputs, it's it's pretty compelling. How do you, what mode are you using? In the, what, what's your programming technique with the 251E to make it useful with the, or make it um, embellish the MARF? Well, my complaints um, about the 251E are really in, in contrast to the sequencer that I used to use in the 70s, mm. right? The 70s. And the problem, you know, the beauty of this is that it's compact, it's a digital sequencer. The other, but it is not, you can't interact with it live. Right. It's, it's not performable. The early sequencer that I used was huge. It took up at least four panel units, if not if not more. I yeah, it's five. If, yeah, the 246 was five panels long. Yeah. It's enormous. It was enormous, and you could interact with it. So you could quickly change the number of, of steps. You could you know, get access to the pulses of each stage. 
you could command it to do things like stop and address a particular stage at the same time. I miss all those things because this digital sequencer really is just looping and the pulse outputs are, are there. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, the, but I get around it, you know, but I'm not happy. I'm really not <laughs> yeah, we've gleaned that from yeah, anytime you kind of bring that one up, it's you know. And I, I think if, if you listen to the Buchla performances 1975, you'll witness a much more complex approach to live analog performance. But that is not possible right now in the in the situation I'm in. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know. It's also a wonderful world, the one I'm in now. And I, I enjoy finding, you know, maximizing, you know, what I have to bring out the most. So here's what I do with a sequence that I cannot, and it's just running. If it's in the MARF, A, B, C, and D, I can gang up, you know, the MARF rhythmically and in essence, I can reprogram the sequence because I can move the MARF positions, mm-hmm. you know, A, B, C, and D. And then the sequencer is, you know, it's uh, advancing systematically, but it's addressing a different sequence on each stage. So I've, re- in essence, reprogrammed the sequence pitches because mm-hmm. it's, now, it's, like, it's like a three-dimensional sequencer. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I I was going to get into this later, but I was wondering, you know, when you first came a, across it, um I'm guessing in probably I think 73 is when Don started making those. Um did you know like could you see that that way of using it immediately or how long did it take you to come around to that? Oh boy. I mean, in those days, you know, I was I was like a monk. You know, <laughs> I, I was, it was my only possession, you know, yeah. I'm living with this machine. When I went to New York in 1974, that was the only thing I had with me. When I got my first apartment, I had a foam pad and a bukla, you know, so I spent enormous numbers of hours interacting with this machine I don't do that now. I mean, but I did have that period in my life when I was just living with it. And how long did it take to discover that? Well, I remember uh, preparing for my live concert in New York, the one that was in 1974. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, live performance was like a choreography. You'd plan out, there was no memory, of course, other than, you know, certain volatile memory. Um, but anyway, you, you just rehearse like a dance, you know, yeah. how to get from one position to another seamlessly. And that took a month. I got to New York a month early and I worked every day for like 10 hours. Hmm. I don't do that anymore, but I did do that. Yeah, you're speaking my language. I've actually over the last year um, performed several times with uh, with a 
choreographer and other dancers where I'm using a uh, music easel and the Marf and like a, uh, a 281. And yeah, it's just a whole lot of rehearsal. And, <laughs> and it is a dance that I'm performing along with them. Yeah, dance with dancers, your own yeah. dance. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So we're doing a live performance on the music easel. Yeah, yeah. I've been. Um, we're fortunate enough up here in Seattle. We've got um, uh, Madra on the Spot that happens during the summers. Where we're playing outside at parks, but also they've got a monthly series uh, inside. And um, yeah, I've played quite a bit with it. And um, yeah, it's you know, there's no memory on there, and uh, there's a lot of live patching and stuff. So yeah, you're definitely a, an inspiration for sure. We should make sure we call out our friends at Modular Seattle as they host um, Modular on the Spot and Modular Nights at the substation where Kyle and I both often perform. Well, I'm so, so absolutely thrilled that everybody's out there doing live analog. I never knew that this day would come. And Finally, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I'm thrilled. And, and I want to hear more. You know, I... I, I do see it a little bit. My When I first started coming out again, you know, in this world, I did see, you know, the early performances, maybe like 2015 or whatever, 14. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of tech performances that were just people, you know, hitting play on their, on their lap books, uh, laptops. And uh, that was disturbing to me. But I think it's really evolved just in the last few years. It's it's happening quickly. And I think the designers of the gear are starting to catch on to, you know, when I first started looking at these new analog systems, the Eurorack things, et cetera, um, you know, there was no feedback. You didn't know what was going on inside them. And I thought, how do people, you know, play these? And now I look and there's a lot of communication. Yeah, they've they've upped their game. I think I there I think there's always a struggle with the Eurac stuff of making stuff compact, um, so you can jam a lot in and get a lot of function in one little box. But then I think more and more designers are taking more notes from Don and letting the modules be a bit bigger and breathe more and give you more feedback through LEDs and whatnot. Um, yeah. So you can be more, you can perform, you can actually get your finger on a knob and not have to, you know, dig through a bunch of uh, spaghetti wires to, you know, to make your movements. So you think there's a trend towards a large, larger modular format? I think it's getting smarter. Yeah. I mean, there's the, this guy that I just, uh, at the Superbooth event, um, uh, the guy that does the instro um, instruments, um, he had a display. It looked amazing and gorgeous but they're very big modules compared to um i don't know compared to a lot out there um and they just look very performative i mean they were just boldly big to where you could actually get your hands in there and and use them in a live way i've seen in Eurorack um this kind of trend where if a module is going to do one thing like a reverb make it as small as possible you know a 2 hp reverb just it's only as wide as the 3.5 millimeter jacks. And then there's another trend for a, a larger module that is vastly multifunction, like what industrial music electronics does and the orthogonal di- devices ER301 and the 302. These are 
computers in Eurorack. It actually remind me a lot of the 251E because it's um, at each stage and it's got a really cool NASA style digital readout. And then there are modules like um, the Supercell, which is a very big version of clouds where they've broken out the menus into CV inputs. And so there's kind of this, the cases in Eurorack, of course, are way less expensive than the cases for Buchla, but you do kind of run into an eventual space problem. But so Eurorack folks and our fans are starting to find that unique balance between this module does very little or one function, so I want it tiny. Whereas this module does a ton of stuff. So I want to have buttons and plenty of CV inputs and outputs and, you know, uh, potentiometers and such. And the aesthetics of Eurorack have really hit a new, in my opinion, a new kind of cultural point where even not just by manufacturers like mutable instruments or make noise that have a very dis distinct look, but now there's like this, other manufacturers are really focusing on the aesthetics of their modules to sort of bring to bring them together as a family of products and then provide the the musician or the uh, the artist to pull together modules of different uh, looks into the layout of their Eurorack system. And it's not just by function anymore. So that's another trend that I think appeals to the natural aesthetics, the natural like for aesthetics that musicians have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's been really crazy to see. You know, Suzanne, one of the things that I was really excited about talking to you about today, um, my um, so my dad was a huge fan of new age music, huge. And when I was a kid, like in 1989 or so, he had Seven Waves on cassette. Uh -huh. and, um, and I listened to Seven Waves so many times as I was studying or going on walks. And so I've, and I listened to it again yesterday. So I know that album very well. And I, I was joking with my wife. I, I sing uh, Fifth Wave, Water Lullaby to my dog. Um, oh. and, I, and I had lyrics with his name. So I know that's really embarrassing, but, but that's kind of the, <laughs> the, the funny thing is that I was listening to that yesterday mm -hmm. and I, did you use a Buchla 200 in that album? Yes, I did. Yeah. So how did you, how did uh, that? So it was only a Buchla 200. Right. You had a Prophet 5, you had uh, maybe an Arp Selena or, or some kind of string synthesizer. You had a lot going on. It, it's all credited on the album because my feeling in those days was that the instruments were like the musicians. So I always credited every piece of, you know, hardware, it was all hardware then, that I used. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you get a hold of one of the actual physical CDs or piece, you'll see all the instruments that we used. There were a lot because, you know, because it kept changing, right? And it really is a compendium of what was available in those days, you know, the album took two years. So yeah. mm -hmm. in the end, the gear, you know, changed, it evolved. Uh, but the Buchla was always there. Uh, but, you know, the Buchla had a, you know, it's a special, a special case in that type of studio recording. It's a whole different world doing a studio recording from doing, you know, a live Buchla performance. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious if, so you have, um, on that album, which you recorded in 79 and to 81, I think, and it came out in Japan around 82 and then the U.S. in 84, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. So between 79 and 81, there was a huge 
um, like a this massive evolution of synthesizers from Roland and Korg and sequential. And I think you used a Prophet Five on on that album, the one that you had on that David Letterman thing. That's <laughs> that segment that's really popular on YouTube. I so was Linda, a huge fan of the Prophet Five. I it's mean, fantastic. One of the basic uses that I had. Honestly, was the bass, and the thing about the Prophet Five is that it had the most beautiful transparent sound. A lot of a lot of the synths in those days they didn't work that way. They hogged the track or they blocked the track. I you know they didn't blend, and the Prophet always left air and space, and you know it was just a beautiful instrument to work with. So do you think that the, if you look at Bukla now, like Kyle and myself and you with your live performances, it's sort of the, it is the instrument. It's sort of like a piano solo or a cello solo, like we talked about with Todd Barton and Yo-Yo Ma last time. But in Seven Waves, which is 30, 40 years ago, you're using the Bukla 200 with all these other instruments and it seamlessly goes into the mix. But now the trend seems to be that it's its own, an instrument in its own right. And although with some exceptions, like um, this band Nezrup did this amazing jazz album that we talked about in the last show where they're using a Skylab with um, a conventional acoustic instruments, you know, pianos and stuff. But do you think that as a pianist yourself, do you, do you think there's still a, a, a way or um, what would be the ways that we would use the Bukla and the Marf as a performance instrument with the traditional instruments you know the, the if we had like if you could play your bukla 200 e with a live orchestra how would you approach that or is that <laughs> well, even a thing that we should do you've asked about six questions yeah, well, i'm a i'm a, a an <laughs> armchair brain, musicologist like, i can't help brain it. is going to pick, pick the one that you like the most well just in a nutshell i mean what led me to do a studio album i had spent you know about 10 years playing bukla and when i play the bukla even though I was a pianist and trained as a pianist and a classical composer, I didn't, I didn't intermingle those because Bukla was so adamant about the danger of associating a traditional keyboard with the instrument because it short-circuited the whole you know, concept of the instrument. And that was actually, you know, as we all know, the beginning of the end of analog was that people didn't see it for what it was. They saw it as a sound tool, making sounds and playing them on the keyboard. Uh, so, so when I was doing the Bukla, there was no audience for it. I would try to do performances and people honestly didn't know where the sound was coming from. They didn't know it was being generated. There was no concept for what that instrument was in the, in the public. And I got so lonely and frustrated and desperate. And I did want to communicate. I did want to reach across and have somebody at least. So I think Seven Waves was my solution in my own life to saying something that was organic to myself. It was a, it was a real synthesis of my classical roots, my melodic classical compositional roots with my electronic vocabulary. And so it, it wasn't just Bukla. It was Bukla and all these other instruments, and it was orchestrated. It was actually written, not, not every note, of course, but, you know, it had, it was a composition. It was mapped out. It had a score. Yeah. 
then I forgot what else you triggered. <laughs> the, uh, I was curious about how you think about in 2019, the ways that, and, and with the Buchla 200E kind of being the, and the ESOL being the prevalent, um, you know, instruments now, the MARF being generally unavailable to most people because you can't just go out and buy one. You have to have it built. But if you were going to play with an orchestra with a, or a live band and on the Buchla, how, what do you think, what would be your approach to that? Would you compose everything for the orchestra or would you improvise on your book or play your bucle performance and expect them to improvise to, to go along with you? Kind of how would you? Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just did a piece. It's a concerto for bucle. Ah. So I, yeah, I go twice a year to Berkeley college of music, or I have been going twice a year. Um, and I'm called a scholar of electronic music, and I do projects. So I interface with the amazing students there. And this last project that we did was the Buchla Concerto. They mm. merged with the, <clears throat> the Boston Conservatory. So they have a lot of classical players, but the beauty of the Berkeley students is they also are modern and they are not tied you know, literally to a traditional score. They can improvise, they can be, you know, they, they can do unusual things. So here's what we did. I left them uh, in the fall with a structure of a composition. And the, the composition had about 13 parts. And I recorded each part. So, you know, this is the introduction. Then we go, we, then we do a transition. Then we arrive here. Then we do a transition. We arrive here and so forth. So the composition was laid out, but with no particular set timing. Hmm. Then the students actually wrote uh, instrumental motifs and, and uh, you know, parts to the various sections of the piece. Then it was doctor's job, because I do improvise, and I'm not going to be counting bars yeah. as I play. But we have eye contact and we have signals. And so I'm in a section, the musicians are playing what goes with that section. And some of it is literally written out, but it's triggered by the conductor who says, okay, start now. And maybe it's a loop that they're playing. Mm. And then we go to the next section. So it kind of works. I don't think we're ready to do that yet at a major symphony in that mm -hmm. form. But I think that we have, uh, you know, it was a big question mark, just like you have a big question mark. I had a big question mark. And now I feel much closer to uh, the solution. The other thing is that I... I recently listened to a piece by Penderecki. Do you know that one? It, it, it's a piece for the victims of the uh, war in Hiroshima, the, the atomic bomb. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's an amazing piece because it has an electronic sensibility, but it is done with acoustic instruments. But the language is electronic. and I never realized until recently, I mean, I've been listening to that piece since the 70s, and 
I never realized that the score is graphic. And so I'd like to, next time around, also explore a graphic score. And, you know, maybe the question, maybe it's a question of uh, holding up numbers and saying, this is the section we're in. Yeah. And, and so forth. But I think there's more fluidity than we realize and that the conductor is, is the key to getting it all to, to gel. Hmm, yeah. Can we talk for a minute about your, your new Finders Keepers release? Um, I know Kyle's got some really great, great, uh, great questions lined up. Uh, it was a really great mm-hmm. album. I gave it a full listen and, and Kyle and I have been talking about it for the past couple of weeks. I just got it myself. They just sent me. I got it like last week. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I think I, I saw, uh, or yeah, you posted on Instagram recently. Some cool shot of all the LPs kind of fanned out. It's yeah, it's some great artwork. Oh yeah, well, Finders Keepers does all that. You know, they they mm-hmm. you know, Andy Botel is an amazing, amazing person. I mean, he's a one man show there in many ways. He he designs everything. He's a graphic artist. He's a musician. He's a historian, an archaeologist. I have a great deal of respect for him. He's doing the Lord's work over there because we're getting this <laughs> stuff from you and loving it. Yeah. Um, so the I'm assuming since these are were done in '69, this is probably about a year after you met Don. Um. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably about a year after I met Don and my recollection of this, and I, you know, my brain is not perfect. <laughs> I know I noticed on the back of the LP, there's a particular photograph and that photograph actually took place a little bit later because that took place in New York. And mm. this piece was done in Berkeley while I was still a student at the University of California. And I had a little studio in my garage. And uh, that was where I recorded. Where did I do the, um, and therefore I had to have had by that time a, a small system, a Buchla system. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was my, yeah, because I was, I guess from what I, I know of your history with Buchla, you know, it's around this time or, you know, a few years from meeting Don and working with him and uh, making enough money to get your own system. I was kind of wondering where this all sat and what what the actual system you you were um, making this music on, because um, this is also kind of right before or or, uh, like or right when the 200 series started coming out. Yes. I mean, my first access to book club was at the San Francisco Tate Music Center, which was housed at Milk's College. Mm -hmm. Mills College did not have a curriculum that included it. So it was just there. And you could go in for $5 an hour. They had the first book 100. I remember the thing that I love doing in this particular poetic, you know, poetry is that I was processing the voice spatially. And to do that, I had to do it at the same time that the Buchla was, you know, playing its sequences. 
The thing about space and spatial modulation is that it's not a post-production element. If you do post-production in space, it's hard to integrate it with the rhythm of the music. And that's a problem with a lot of the spatialization systems that are coming up now. And, you know, electronic music is really the one domain that's naturally spatial. And the 227E, right, that Buchla had way, way back, uh, is, is a perfect control voltage spatializer. And also what we had then was a control voltage spring reverb. And that's used on the voice. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I I, um, I keep referring to these, you know, recent interviews that you've done in the last several years, and uh, especially talking about not being able with your current system to uh, CV the, the mix of that and add depth, you know, bring in the reverb and bring it out until you got your Northern Light modular modded H9s. Oh, you're right uh, to date. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan, what can I say? Um and but I could really I think with the 1975 stuff I'm sure you're probably doing that in that system but I think the space was large that I couldn't um, take in that reverb change as much as I did on on the uh, Flowers of Evil track I could really hear that you know getting very present when you'd kind of drop the mix and then bring it back up it was very very cool to hear it hear what you've been wanting for so long and hear it in these old recordings cool. Well, you know, the, the 1975 recordings were, they, those were quadraphonic performances. Yeah. But they had very primitive, you know, they were recorded. Uh, well, the WBAI was at least recorded at a radio station. So that was a higher level, but it wasn't recorded. You know, the, the master that I had was not quadraphonic. And the earlier one at Phil Niblock was, I think, recorded just... Uh, you know, with a room mic or something, it wasn't, it wasn't a high level recording. So you don't get the quad sense. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where this, it was nice to, cause it made me think too, of like a lot of what we know of your book list, um, recorded music, a lot of it is live, even with just, you know, the, the album last year, that was all live too. So thinking that these are probably in more of a studio setting that you had more control. No, these um, were done live. Oh, were they? Well, not the not the soundtrack on on side B because that was to a movie, and so that required you know stopping, starting, and recording. But the yeah, okay, the sequencing that you hear on the Buchla and the Flowers of Evil—that's all just done live. I guess yeah, I meant that, but um, oh. but in a more controlled environment um, that maybe you're you're recording those tracks in a more controlled environment. It's, Okay. Instead of in front of people in a in a larger room, yeah, right. Um, one of the, there's oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask um, because on that album, and Kyle and I've been talking a lot about this too. Is you use filters a lot? You use the I, I maybe the two ninety. Well, the two ninety one would be later, but your your music and your Buchla music has a lot of of um, a filter sound to it, whereas. A lot of the music that like I make or that I hear others people making now rely more on the low pass gate and the wave shaping, you know, and the and the 261E, which I realized wasn't around way back then. But you know, you're using a um, a lot of filtering in that to to kind of 
shape or sculpt that sound. And is that, did you have that in mind in term? Is that something that you thought about ahead of time where you wanted the timbral characteristics or the sound to change a certain way? Or was that more improvised as you were playing through the, through the sequence? Well, it was improvised. And I have to say that I, I don't even today have a filter that comes close to that one. Yeah. And, and in those days, I mean, to me, the 200, you know, was the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle. And I would, I, you know, my system disappeared. Uh, and I'm, I, hope they remake that. I don't know if it's possible, but there was so much more uh, control and option. You know, the filter, I, I got the new 200E 291 filter. Oh, go away. I rescued a kitty and it's torturing me. But the two. The 290, do you know the 291E? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have okay, so I could, that was used on my first comeback album, so one that was released in Quadraphonic. And I suffered so much with that filter because the control voltage input, you know, just went one way. There's no, there was no control on the control voltage. You yeah. know, if you wanted to attenuate that control voltage, you supposedly had to use a whole other module because there was no in the old days we had attenuation negative and positive mm. so you had a lot more control and the filter could sweep and wait a second okay <laughs> <laughs> maybe she should sing water lullaby <laughs> the, ki the kitty was wild and it had never been touched Oh wow! And now all it, wants, it wants to be touched all the time. <laughs> the pendulum has swung. <laughs> pendulum has swung, right? Um, but anyway, so that I, I had actually a clone made of the two hundred, yeah, two ninety, and it is not, you know, it it even doesn't come close. Mm. So yeah, because they they really, I, but it's bad on that recording. It. Sounds amazing. So it wasn't a, a 291 that you used on the Flyers of Evil then? You know, I would. Ha I wonder if there's any way to research that. Um, I I don't, it could have been a 291. Well, you, you're you the, the experts <laughs> on the old stuff. What was available then? Well, what was available that's then? What, you know, and that's what we hope with this podcast is, you know, we're trying to learn as much as we can, even though we're, both Robert and I are kind of newer to Bukla. There's obviously a lot of people that have been into it since the 70s and 80s and 90s um, that have a lot more information, but you can't just, no one knows where that's that's at. And I, it was a 291 actually, because I remember the F, um, oh, okay. you know, input. Hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing that's missing now that we had then was in the envelope generators, you know, Again, we could shrink and expand. Now you can expand, mm. but you can't shrink. And, you know, it was just a, there were a lot of differences. Uh, there was more control and more performability. So I think we really do need to study the 200. For, yeah, for sure. And so, like, are you talking about maybe on like the, the 284, the, the envelope that, 
was two spaces wide. Is that, was that yes. your main envelope? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, so here we've already mentioned, you know, the superiority of the or the superiority of the envelope generator, the superiority of the sequencer. Um, you know, you add all these things up mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. it's pretty, you know, there's, there's a lot to um, improve now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that stuff, it's technology from 40 plus years ago. And it, the, it would seem like it would be possible to, to do that now, but in an analog way, a lot of those chips are just simply no longer available. And that, that's been part of the, of the challenge. There's a guy here in Seattle that has a, um, several original 200 modules, including a 259. And he said that nothing sounds like the 259. They, they don't even really come close to the, the sound of the, of the Buchla 259. He has the 284 also. So Kyle, maybe we can ask him if he can bring it on the show. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's just with, I mean, obviously with Don's progression of, um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Suzanne and I think, you know, you definitely hit that sweet spot in the seventies with the, the 200 system because stuff was big and you could perform on it. And then with the 200 E things just got smaller. The Marf became the Darf, the 246, which was five panels long, yeah. became a one panel, 251. Um, you know, the keyboards got shrunk down to the 223. Um, you know, it wasn't fully chromatic or anything. Not like that was um, on every one of his keyboards. But uh, but yeah, they, they did become less performable, but you got to start saving your patches. And it was, yeah, that, that balance of... Um, kind of shifted and i think there's still a lot of people like myself who really long after that 200 series stuff because it is very performable it is you know at the same time we we have to of course recognize that in the late 2000s don was was doing new things too you know the 252e for example and there, there was nothing like that and I, I didn't, I didn't, I never met Don, unfortunately, but I have to think that he was always looking forward. So the, that stuff that he was doing for 200E by having them, a lot of them computer driven, um, you know, which was always his dream, at least from what I've read in interviews and such. I think that he would, wanted to recognize the past of the, of the past instruments, but was really looking forward to what was possible with technology and pushing the envelope going going forward. But I wish that we could, I'm with you and Suzanne Kyler. I wish we could have that balance. I, I wish I could have a 291E that sounds as good as the 291 did and with the same level of control. I was playing with the, the MARF going into the bandwidth input and the frequency input on the 291. And like you were saying, Suzanne, it really, it starts at the point that the attenuator is at and only goes up from there. And then back down to the the starting position. It can't go below where I have the the, the two ninety one set to, which and you can't control the amount that it's going right. up. You know, no attenuator yep. on that. And yeah. it's a quantized um, as well, so it will be stepped voltages as you increase the frequency with the knob. And so yeah. there, there are a lot of challenges, and that a lot of that too is a, as a function of the technological capabilities of when the module came out. And I think it just hasn't really been updated since then. And who knows what the future holds? But it's interesting, you know, the conversation started with talking about 
um, technology in the 90s and how you know we're, we witnessed so many changes and then we take them for granted now. We're seeing that too with the with the bookless stuff where this stuff was made in the early 2000s and hasn't really been updated since then. And we're kind of dealing with the idiosyncrasies of that now and wishing for the simplicity of how things used to be uh, or then the sound of those. But then we have to kind of think about what what will come, what changes will they will they come up with? Like, will they ever make a 248, a 248E? It's like, how could the, as I use one now, I think, how could you ever have a bookla and not have a morph? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I've been talking with a lot of people about morph because, you know, I need it so much. And um, I have three of them now, three of the clone units, because I wanted a backup. And no two of them is alike. So, you know, I don't have a backup. Uh, they're very inconsistent one to the next one. Uh, and what we need is to just sit down. I, I mean, I think, I think it's definitely the best solution so far is the, uh, you know, the, the cloned Marv. But I think that people are starting to look at the design. I tried to design one. You know, out of my own personal need, I thought, well, gosh, you know, uh, the Buchla company was gone, you know, for a while. It was in Australia and in Nakato, and I couldn't deal with them, and Dawn wasn't well. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, now I'm finding myself back in this scene here and uh, with the same insecurities that I had the first time around, which is what happens when it breaks. And so I started talking to engineers and I started to design, you know, and, and I realized and it made me very humble, actually. I've always used these things and I can comment on, you know, that efficacy of how they work. But when you sit down to design something, it's a whole other uh, banana, yeah. you know, you, it, it, it's another world, you know. So I was humbled by, by that, trying to design. Uh, but I could work, I think of this as a collaborative art form. And I think you just need a good conversation with a good engineer. Uh, and that's tricky to find because, well, now I'm rambling, but, uh, you know, every engineer has like, what their background is and where they come from. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's hard to instill bucla consciousness <laughs> into it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do here, Suzanne, with the show. We're just, yeah. <laughs> so all these engineers that are listening to the show and we're instilling bucla consciousness to them. Please get in touch with us and we can uh, have the uh, MARF summit. <laughs> Yeah, the, the bucle consciousness has affected my work, that's for sure. It really has. And I had a conversation about um, about design. And I work for a technology company, and we make a lot of products that you use, and um, most likely use. And we were talking about conversational agents and, and all this stuff. And I was pointing, I was using the MARF as an example of how when we have conversations, we're moving through these different stages and they have different parameters of each stage as we're trying to make a particular communication. And I had a picture of it on a, 
on the presentation. And I'd say half the room was like, what the heck is this? But the, de- the, de- <laughs> the designers were like, oh, my God, yes, that's exactly right. 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 Well, that gap is always there. Oh, my gosh, we're, we're stumbling up oh, on yeah. 11. Yeah. Well, is there anything we cover? I mean, a million other things. But you know what? At some point, we're going to do a show on the 227, and we hope that you'll come back and we can actually. Oh, that's my favorite. You know, I just go on. Well, good. We'll, we'll an hour about. The- we'll expect that next time okay. too. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, Suzanne. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate just talking with you guys. Thank you. Another big thank you to Suzanne Chiani. Uh, you can see what she's up to on her website, sevwave.com, S-E-V-W-A-V-E.com. And you can find her new album, Flowers of Evil, at finderskeepersrecords.com. Also a reminder to check out Ross Healy's album, A Silent Burst, on bandcamp.com, as well as his record label at vicmod.net. That's V-I-C-M-O-D.net. And go listen and subscribe to Podular Modcast. As we mentioned, Tim had Suzanne on his show a few weeks ago, and he's had some other fantastic return guests recently, like Lisa Belladonna and Ben Divkid-Wilson. Speaking of Ben, you should also check out his podcast with Ed Ball called Esoteric Modulation. It has had Vlad Kramer from Soma Labs on the show, and it was really great to hear a true visionary talk about his designs. And don't forget to visit Waveform Magazine to get a free print magazine delivered in the mail. The second issue is coming soon. And you can support the show through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash source of uncertainty. See you next time. Mm-hmm.